All right, Acts 1.8. Very familiar verse for uh, Pentecost Sunday. And I want you to listen really carefully to the words of this. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now listen to this connection with this. These are forever connected. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Some versions say uttermost parts of the earth or the ends of the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and... uh, Lord, we just pray that you would uh, be with each one of us today, Lord, and that you would um, minister through your Spirit, Lord. And um, we just pray that your Spirit would communicate directly to every heart, would speak, Lord, to every heart. And um, we pray that all would be done to your glory, Lord, and your honor. And um, your name we pray, Lord Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. So this is the famous verse for um, the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost is uh, recognized as the birthday of the church. And the church uh, began to move and the church began to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit um, was poured upon God's people. And forever it will be connected with, My Spirit will come upon you and you shall be. And we got to really listen to the next things that are there because it's incredibly connected to what the Feast of Pentecost was in the Bible. Um, and it says, the Holy Spirit will be poured upon you and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the remotest parts of the earth. Now, the day of Pentecost happened in Jerusalem. And the church was born in Jerusalem. And uh, this is very, very important, Um, and we don't find until Acts 8, which is several years later, probably about three years, we read this, Saul consented, this is Acts 8.1, he consented or agreed, or uh, one version says in hearty agreement, with putting him to death, which means Stephen, the martyr, the first martyr of the church. And it says, on that day, a great persecution began against the church. Remember, they were born at Pentecost, three years transpire, and now Saul is violently going after the church, and it says, on that day, a great persecution began. What day did it occur? The day that Stephen was stoned. And they were all scattered Throughout the regions of where? Except the apostles. So we don't actually find the fulfillment of you're going to be my witnesses until three years later when Stephen is martyred and it says they were all scattered and then they finally went to the places where God said, I'm pouring my spirit out so you can be my witnesses there. And so this morning I want to look at chapters 1 through 8, what happened to, what did God do to finally fulfill His Word in these people? And uh, But before I do that, and this will be a little bit boring, but I've got to go through what Pentecost is. And every year I try to give a real full understanding because God has a calendar. And in that calendar, 
God is very specific that we um, remember the uh, Jewish holy days. He doesn't have very many. He has spring feasts and fall feasts. And he was very clear when they came out of Egypt, you know, almost, you know, 1300 years before uh, the day of Pentecost. So they, this is an ancient tradition, even when they were celebrating it in Jerusalem. You know, they'd been celebrating it for over a thousand years. I mean, no, we don't have very many holidays we celebrate for a thousand years. And today it's the oldest uh, uh, religious celebration in the world is Passover. And so we've been celebrating that for, you know, they've been celebrating probably over 3,000 years, well over 3,000 years. And uh, so God was really specific. He brings them out of Egypt and he says, specifically celebrate these days at the exact moment. And God was using it as a calendar of events so he could commemorate what he was going to do through Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ was very careful um, to make sure that he fulfilled each of those uh, commemorative feasts and commemorative holy days. And so the day of Passover, I'm just going to go through these really quickly, but on the day of Passover, there was to be, um, it was part of the Egyptian plagues. And so there was going to be the death of every firstborn. And so God said, hey, every family, let's sacrifice a Passover lamb. Let's put over the lentils of your door, and this will protect your family. And if you'll be obedient and uh, sacrifice the Passover lamb, and it had certain specifications, it had to look a certain way, it had to be a certain way, very stringent rules on what you could do on those days. And Jesus, as you look at especially Matthew in the Gospels, he fulfilled being God's Passover lamb to every single detail. There was no details that he left out to make sure that we were understanding that he was fulfilling that calendar from over a thousand years before he was born um, into the earth, on the earth. Um, so the day of unleavened bread, um, they're very specific. The unleavened bread and the first fruits feast kind of combined together, but they were two separate um, uh, things, and the unleavened bread was very symbolic of Jesus' burial. So they make a point of saying that Jesus was buried on the day of unleavened bread. He was the unleavened bread that was buried. And then the first fruits, um, the Bible is very specific to say that Jesus fulfilled the first fruits because he was um, the first fruits of the resurrection. He and those who resurrected with him in the graves popped open. This is the first fruit, kind of a down payment for us to know that he did what he said he was going to do. And so you follow the Jewish feasts and the unleavened bread. They had to make it quickly. They couldn't put leaven in it. They had to hurry up and leave town. They don't know what it symbolizes. They just are following it to the T. And then every year after that, for a thousand years, they celebrated it. Then Jesus came and they said, okay, it makes sense now. He is the unleavened bread. He's being buried. Because they had to hide it. I don't know if you remember, but they had to hide that unleavened bread. Um, as they were leaving. And so they put it in their coat. Um, the first fruits, you know, uh, they were just celebrating the first fruits of their harvest. And so at Passover, they had the first fruits of the barley harvest. So they're just saying, hey, the grain harvest is starting. And those, all of those uh, harvest uh, festivals, these are harvest calendar events. And so they were designed because when you leave Egypt... You're going to a land that flows with milk and honey of great abundance, and we do not want you 
to be proud, and we don't want you to forget God. We want you to know that God put you in that land. So at Passover, they wave what's called the barley harvest. It's the very early harvest, okay? And so that's uh, it's the beginning of the grain harvest. And then um, when they leave on the after first fruits, they have what's called counting the omer. And counting the omer means you're going to count seven Sabbaths, which is 49 days, and that next day will be both a year of Jubilee, a day of Jubilee, and it will also be the 50th day. So in the Greek, they called that Penta, which called it Pentecost. So it's fully a harvest holiday. It's where you bring in the beginning, the first fruits of the wheat harvest. So your wheat harvest is starting, and then when that wheat harvest is finished, there's going to be a trumpet that's going to blow. And then the fall feast start. That means that your harvest is fully being gathered. The trumpet will blow. And if you're out in the field and you're an Arab and you're a Jew, the Jew will leave, the Arab will stay, because the Jew knows we've got to thank him that the harvest is almost completed. And then they have another harvest that's called the gleanings. And the gleanings are basically what's left on the outer edges, and we're going to gather whatever else on the four corners of the earth that are left. And that is what's called the rapture of the church and the tribulation. So there will be gleanings. I mean, no, there's a lot of gleanings that are going to come in that seven-year period. So God was very specific that this is a calendar. And He's also very specific that everything about Pentecost is about a harvest. And Jesus is the first fruit of that harvest. But this is the beginning of what the Bible calls the last day harvest. So Jesus with first fruits begins the last day harvest and Pentecost is the mechanism that's going to bring the harvest in. Let me repeat that. Pentecost is the action that's going to bring this harvest in. And so it's not unusual now with all that set up that he says, I'm going to pour out my spirit and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem. And they're like, Good, man, I love my hometown. And he goes, oh, but also in Judea, well, that's not so bad. They're good people. My cousins live over there. And Samaria, and they're like, well, wait a minute. How's that going to happen? We don't even walk through that territory. We don't associate with them. Jesus talked to a lady once there, and she became an evangelist, the first one in the church. But we don't do that because we're good Jews. Jesus was not like us. I mean, no, this is an odd thing. And there's no plan on the table to do this. There's no strategy. There's no board meetings. There's nothing. How are we going to fulfill Acts 1-8, which clearly is why we were poured, the Spirit was poured out on us. And so it's a, then he says the remotest parts of the earth, and they're like, well, wait a minute. Columbus hasn't even sailed the ocean blue. We don't even know where the remotest parts of the earth are, right? But God says, we're going to go there? How are we going to do that? Let's call a board meeting. Let's see if we can figure this strategy out. So the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and you say, well, what fruit is being brought? The fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is going to begin to develop on the day of Pentecost, which is very fitting. The day of Jubilee is the day that we announce that everybody has freedom. Freedom is being announced from debts. Freedom is being announced. Jubilee is a year where everybody celebrates freedom. And so here we are, 
on Pentecost, we have this Scripture that God promises to do, but it takes them three years to do it. And so, in those three years, we've got to look at what they were doing and how God accomplished His plan. Because this is the the title of the message is the Pentecostal harvest, and when we hear Pentecostal, we say praise God Pentecostal, and and it derives all kinds of connotations. It may be a tent meeting somebody had eighty years ago is what Pentecost is. You know, it may be something we we all have definite. How many know there's lots of definitions for Pentecost, but what it should immediately think of is harvest. Because that's what it's all about, harvesting the lost. Harvesting a world that is lost, and we're going to reach them, but we just don't know how, and they didn't know how. Okay? And so, but God promises through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that you will be my witnesses to the world. And so let's just look at how God did this. Because for three years they were in Jerusalem... And for three years, they didn't do it. And, and a lot of the commentaries that I read say they were disobedient, they were rebellious, they wanted to stay in Jerusalem. And I just can't go that far. I can't say that they were disobedient. I can't say that they were rebellious. The Bible doesn't say that. It just says they were still there. And so let's go back a little bit and let's connect it with the festival because God is very intentional. God's very intentional about connecting that Jewish festival of Pentecost with what happened in Jerusalem that day. And he wanted it to be on that day, and he ordained it to be on that day particularly. That's why you can't take out the phrase, on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, then the Spirit was fell. So, I started rethinking their exodus. And you say, well, man, I wish... I would have been there because they call it the days of waiting when they were coming out of Exodus. Uh, Pentecost, counting the Omer, were the days of waiting where God did signs and wonders. And so as they're coming out of Egypt, all they've seen, no other group of people probably seen more signs and wonders uh, in their lifetime than they've seen on those days from Egypt with the plagues all the way to Mount Sinai, which is the day of Pentecost. God delivered the law on the day of Pentecost when they got to Sinai. And what were they going to do after Sinai? They were going to immediately enter the promised land. So now start thanking God for the harvest. You don't even have to plant the fields. They're going to be given to you. They were disobedient and didn't go in, so they couldn't celebrate until 40 years later. And he said, when you go in the land, do this. And so 40 years later, they start celebrating the grain that God gave them. But I want you to think about their mentality from Egypt to Mount Sinai. They don't have a promised land yet. They're complaining, they're murmuring, they're upset. And uh, you say, well, man, they're terrible people. I don't think so. I, well, they are. God, God clearly says they are. But I just want you to put ourselves in that. I, I just want to see if we're any better. Because what if you had lived in Egypt like 400 years? And that's the only land that you knew. We haven't been in America for 400 years. And even though they were in bondage, Everybody had different housing. And so how many are like me? You get in a housing for a little period of time and you've got it exactly the way you want it. You can't wait to show people how I organized this, how I made this, here's where I live, here's my dwelling place. 
Uh, that's where my grandpa lived. That's where my great-grandpa lived. That's where my family grew up at. They have no context for Jerusalem. They have no context for Israel. They have no context for any other place but Egypt. And so Egypt is home. And so we take it for granted that these people picked up and left their home. And so that's why, and I'm not saying they weren't bad for doing it, because God clearly says they were bad for grumbling and murmuring, but I can understand them in a way because they're in the middle of the desert eating mysterious bread from heaven, and that's all they get. You know, they have to fix it a million different ways. But they're looking back and they're saying, man, I had my house set up perfect. I had my garage the way I wanted, you know. I had my house the way I wanted it. They all had built dwellings for generations. And so here they were leaving. And they're trying to visualize this new home. And so you say, well, what's that have to do with Jerusalem? Well, in order for them to reach the world, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Jerusalem's where I've grown up my whole life. So three years, does it not make sense that for three years they haven't fulfilled God's plan and God's purpose? Um, it goes even deeper than that. Um, when I went to, Jer- went to Jerusalem and visited the upper room, that probably, I might say this on several things, I don't know, but I truly think the most shocking thing that I seen was when I went to the upper room, they claim that David's tomb is in the lower level of that. And so it's disputed, but there is a tomb down there for King David, and then the upper room is above it. And so a lot of history says it was Mark's parents that owned the upper room, and that's where they stayed at. But, and then they say it was by the southern steps because they came out and baptized 3,000 people, and the Pool of Siloam is the only place you can baptize 3,000 people in one day, and they came out and everybody was there from all the nations, so it's probably the southern steps. So they say the upper room is the same place where King David's buried, and then when Peter comes out and preaches, he says, uh, King David is buried even to this day, you can see it. And so they're saying he's pointing to the building where they were at. And so that was shocking to me. I never heard that, never knew that, and so they disputed a little bit, but it's a possibility that David was right there in that building. So let's put ourselves in this place. We watch the Holy Spirit fall in this place. You know, it's symbolic of Sinai because Sinai, there was fire and lightning and thunder and the whole place just exploded with God and they backed off. They didn't want anything to do with it. And they rebelled that day and 3,000 were put to the sword because they were against God. Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. So they're clearly making a connection. The law kills, the Spirit gives life. Um, the fire not only was on the mountain, but the fire was separated and put on each individual. So it's like God's fire is now going on individuals, not just one big fire. Everybody's receiving this fire of the Holy Spirit now. That was what it was symbolic of. It's an individual gifting. It's an individual spirit that stays with you all the days of your life and bears fruit and gives gifts and you know, going to equip you to do what? Harvest. And so, um, think about this. You're walking around Jerusalem and you're like, this is where I'm from. This is where my people are from. 
that building right there, King David might be buried there. We've seen the Holy Spirit supernaturally fall in that building. They met in that building, they believe, for the first several years. It's considered the first Christian church is that building. How many think that's a special place? And Jesus was whipped right there. Jesus carried the cross through the street in front of our building. He was crucified over there on that place that looks like a skull. He was buried over there in that tomb, which is right around the corner. I mean, I would love to go to church at the first church of the upper room. How many think that would be an awesome place? And, and, um, but then I want you to give you another realistic picture here. Stephen is preaching the gospel. And it says that three synagogues in Acts 6 9 says three different synagogues, sitting out of the Freedmen's Synagogue and, uh, um, oh, what is the region there? We're, uh, pick up 6 9 there. Cilicia, I'm sorry. Cilicia is one of the three synagogues that came against Stephen. And it says they slandered Stephen. They brought witnesses forward who said things about him that weren't true. And so many people believe Paul is from the area where the synagogue of Cilicia is. He would have been a part of Cilicia. And so a lot of people believe that Saul, who they're talking about here, who's persecuting, was a part of that synagogue, and he probably knew Stephen really well because Stephen was a uh, Hellenistic Jew and from that area. And so they probably knew each other well, and Saul was probably one of the people from the synagogue that contended with him. And it says Saul was agreeable to put him to death over what he did. Now here's where the problem comes in. It was against the law to mourn a criminal. And so they did it. They knew that he had been slandered. They knew he was a good man. They knew he was preaching the gospel. So when they began to mourn and give him a decent burial, then that was against the law. And that's what caused this incredible persecution because they mourned their friend Stephen who did everything right. And so I want to go back to this. God's pouring out His Spirit so we can be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. It seems very clear to me that they did not want to leave Jerusalem. And they had set up structure there. Remember there in verses 1 through 8, there was a, um, there was a controversy that brewed. And it was the Hellenistic Jews were not getting served. And so they raised up men who would serve tables. Philip was one of those. Stephen was one of those. And they raised up seven men to serve tables so they could preach the gospel still. And so once you recognize they built structure, they had Jerusalem probably so well organized. Sounds like they did. They were led by the Holy Spirit to establish structure, to minister to the poor, to preach the gospel. They were really doing an incredibly structured good work in Jerusalem. But how does God reach the world? How does He fulfill the call to reach the world? And does He even let them know? He doesn't. Winds of persecution and slander and all these things begin to come into the equation. So God is going to have to fulfill His plan and they don't even know how he's going to do it. And so he brings Saul into the picture. 
Saul contends with Stephen. They slander Stephen. They put Stephen to death. And now a terrible thing has happened. We, we just overlook it. We gloss over it and think it's a minor thing. But it says Saul was ravenous. He was like a beast destroying the church. And it says he dragged families out of their homes and put them in prison. And so let's imagine that something like that happened to us. Our families were being dragged out of our homes. Things were being confiscated. People were being put in prison. And so it says they scattered. They scattered. They couldn't be in Jerusalem anymore. You ever seen a bird ruffle up the nest a little bit? And say, I love you, but you just can't stay here. You've got to grow into what I want you to be. That's what God was doing here. He loves them. But they're going through some terrible times. What could be worse than Stephen, one of the best men in that assembly, being murdered? For no reason. Saul, ravenous beast going against the church. People being arrested, dragged from their homes. And worst of all, they have to leave everything they have. In fact, you know all through the early part of the Paul's ministry, all the way to the very end, he's going around the different churches around the world gathering money for the poor in Jerusalem because they lost everything. And so here they are, very similar to the children of Israel, leaving their home. Do you see the similarity here? But what's really interesting is the word they use here. In Acts 8.1 and Acts 8.4, they use the same word here that's a very unique word. It says, And Saul was consenting unto Stephen's death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church. It was at Jerusalem. They were all scattered abroad, throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Then down in 4 it says, Therefore they were scattered abroad, and they went everywhere preaching the word. That word scattered is a very, very unique word. Um, That word, there's different words he could have used. One word is scatter like ashes, and they're gone forever. Like just thrown away, scattered. But this one is very specific. This one means that they were broadcast like a seed in order to be planted. So it's like they're carrying a bag and they're throwing that seed and planting the seed. And so that's the word he uses here twice. They were scattered like seeds to be planted. God was sowing is what he was doing. That's how they did it in that day. And so it goes on. Let's read the whole thing here. Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, except for the, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. You notice the leaders weren't scattered? These are the normal people. These are the people serving tables and people doing ministry. And um, It says, but Saul began to destroy the church. Hold on. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. You see, the church is being destroyed. It's all there in Jerusalem. Being destroyed. And going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women. Moms and the dads are going to prison here. Put them in prison. Those who had been scattered, there's that word, preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. Samaria, we didn't even have a plan on the table for Samaria, right? But Jesus had already planted some seeds there, didn't he? They were already ready for the gospel. And uh, they were wondering, why are you waiting three years? Come down here. And it says, um, He went to the city of Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed. 
They all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, how did great joy come to that city? Because they were persecuted. And God was fulfilling his plan through his own means. God's going to fulfill what he wants to do in the way that he wants to do it. And those people were never informed of how God was going to do it. They just had to be faithful to what God was doing in their life. Hallelujah. I was reading an illustration, and it said that um, close to 30% of the people will attend church if they are asked. That's a study they did. They just went out and asked people if they would attend their church, people they knew. They said 30% of the people would do that. 11% would receive Christ if the gospel was shared with them. I want you to think about the American church right now. How many people think that we've tested that out thoroughly? How many think that we've tested it and said, that's probably more like 27%. That's probably a little high, Chad. That might be 18%. You know, and, and, and how many know that we aren't any different than the people in Jerusalem? We want to take care of our home. We want our home beautiful. We like where we're at. We're, we get comfortable. And we're a little different than a lot of places in the world right now where they're being persecuted. They don't have comfort anymore. And so what does God do when we're a comfortable, apathetic people? He's got to do something because He knows we want to reach the lost. And we know we want to reach the lost. He wants to reach them, we want to reach them, but we just can't. There's something blocking it there. So what does God do? And so what do we do? We keep praying, God, help us. Lord, help us reach the lost. Lord, let us reach the lost. Lord, bring the lost in. Lord, do this and that. And you know what happens when you pray those prayers? He does it. And we can't be sad when He does it. And we don't know how He's going to do it. I don't know how He's going to do it. You don't know how He's going to do it. Uh, The early church doesn't know how, how He's going to do it. Sometimes He'll tell us, but He says we see through a glass darkly. And so here they went to Samaria with no plan. They'd already had the plan put together in Jerusalem. It was all well-structured and ready to go. And so they get to Samaria, and what's the first thing on their mind? Let's lay low. Let's lay low and let the cops kind of thin out a little bit, and let's let the persecution die down, and then we'll get back to work on winning the lost. No, they got that seed was such a high quality. That seed was uh, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. And so wherever it was planted, what's it going to do? Bear the fruit of the Spirit. And they're going to do it through the gifts of the Spirit and through the operation of the Spirit. And so as soon as they got to Samaria, they began to preach the gospel again. Everything was lost in Jerusalem that they had, even their own homes. And so they went to Samaria, and the first thing they did is they started to bear fruit. Then they went to Judea and started to bear fruit. And here's what's fascinating. A lot of them ended up in Antioch. And here's how God works. And I said, if somebody would have told them what God was going to do, they would have been a little shocked, to say the least, okay? Because then the Bible begins to shift to Antioch. It's no longer focused on Jerusalem. I said, but Jerusalem, that's the holy city, Jad. That's God's city. You know, don't you think a lot of them were saying that? 
But they were very obedient to God. They were saying, God's planning us here. And this is where we're at now. And same thing with the children of Israel. They, God really wanted them to trust and say, okay, we're not in Egypt, Egypt anymore. We're here now, and God's doing a new thing. And both of those fell on Pentecost. Weird. And God uh, brings them to Antioch. And they're like, hey, um, there's this guy that's been working with Barnabas quite a bit, and he's winning Gentiles. What's his name? Saul, but now he goes by Paul. <laughs> they go, what? Can you imagine their reaction, the people in Jerusalem that relocated to Antioch? Because they had some freedom there. They could blend a little bit better. They could preach the gospel. They weren't being persecuted in all those areas, only Jerusalem. So now they're like, Paul is discipling people. Paul is winning the lost. And now all of a sudden you have all these people producing fruit in Antioch. And it says prophets are being raised up. All these people, apostles, are being raised up. And all of a sudden, the apostles were in Jerusalem, and they have to go down to Antioch to solve a problem. What's the problem? Gentiles are being saved. What was the original promise? You're going to go to Judea. You're going to go to Samaria. You're going to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And there was no board meeting, no plan. Nobody knew God's plan. But they just had to trust that all these terrible things that are happening were right in the middle of God's will somehow. And so they go down to Antioch. The, the, the apostles have to go up there and check out what's going on. And they go up there, and when they show up, people begin to disassociate with Paul that had been associated with him. And they said, yeah, um, we're not with Paul. And Paul had to reprimand them to their face because they were not behaving the way Jesus had taught them. Jesus said, you will go to the Jews first, and then you'll go to the Gentiles and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You, you see they still weren't willing to do it? And then Paul, the one that caused the stinking persecution in the beginning, God turns the whole thing around and says, okay, meet your new leader. <laughs> leader of the Christian cause, the guy who was destroying the church. Can you imagine if God had told them what the plan was? We don't know the plans. We, all we know is we're called to be fruitful. We're called to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. We're called to submit to whatever God's called us to do. And those are hard things sometimes. Leaving a place like this is very comparable to leaving Jerusalem, to leaving Egypt. They're very comparable. I, I just seen that when I was studying. I was thinking, man, that's so comparable. And uh, But anyway... Now, they're winning so many Gentiles, God is beginning to speak to this mature group of people that were sent away through persecution. How much do you think that matured them, being sent away from their homes through persecution? How much did it focus them on the gospel? They get in Antioch and they're saying, hey, God is telling us. Holy Spirit's speaking to us. Send this former persecutor, Paul, on a missionary journey. This guy will win the world. And Paul, his only heart is to raise up people to preach the gospel around the world. Everywhere he goes, he's leaving people behind to raise up more and more ministers, to pastor, to do the five-fold ministry. And, and so they, because they were persecuted and sent to Antioch, now all that money and all that resource is going towards sending out apostles 
around the world, and they went to the uttermost parts of the earth. Paul went on those four missionary journeys. The last one, uh, they think he might have been all the way to Spain, and you know, he went all the way to Rome, he went all the way to the Greek Empire. I mean, he went everywhere, and then everywhere Paul went, other people went from there and went even further. And now the 12 apostles who are in Jerusalem, guess what they're doing? Thomas is way over in India. Another one's down in Egypt. I mean, they went all over the world, these, these, the 12 did, because God had to run them out of Jerusalem. Because God loves them and God had a plan and God had a purpose. It seemed terrible at the time. It seemed awful at the time, but they were obedient to God. And they began, because they couldn't put a plan on the table to do that. There's no plan that they could have put on the table to reach Samaria and reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Can you imagine planning that meeting? Okay, guys, we're meeting today, and the goal is to reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Where do we start? God always had a plan. God always had a purpose, and we just don't understand what they are sometimes. You know, we just got to be obedient and uh, hear God. This is an interesting story that I was reading here about persecution. I really like this. Actually, two of them. I liked them both, and I couldn't narrow down to one. In Enterprise, Alabama, there is a unique statue. It is a statue of a boll weevil. Have you ever heard of this? Have you seen it? (laughs) Why would you make a statue of a pest, a boll weevil? But there came a time in Enterprise, Alabama, where the cotton fields were being destroyed by boll weevils. And it was terrible. It was destructive, and they were losing a lot of money. And um, George Washington Carver and several scientists were trying to figure out, is there an alternate crop that we can plant? And so, you know, the fame of George Washington Carver was peanuts. And so they discovered the peanut crop, and, and he, I think, discovered like a 100 different uses for peanuts. And so they became very wealthy and prosperous because they went away from cotton. And they got rid of all the cotton uh, equipment and went with a crop, a rotation that had peanuts in it. And so to this day, they credit the boll weevil <laughs> for what he did, <laughs> the pest that destroyed their crop. And how many know that the enemy is always a destroyer? The enemy sees the seed. Sees the potential of the seed. One quote that I've seen was, you can count how many seeds are in an apple. How many think you could do that if you really were careful? I can count how many seeds are in an apple. But you can't count how many apples are in a seed. Only God can do that. And so the enemy knows that we are a seed, and when we're right and we're bearing the Holy Spirit, God will be faithful. In fact, I want you to look at this. Matthew 13, 70, 13, verse 37, 38. Listen to this example here. This is part of a parable. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but listen to this part of it. He answered and said to them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So who sows the good seed? He's got a bag in his hand, and he's determining himself. The Spirit decides all these things. We don't. We just got to be faithful. He has a bag in his hand. Son of man is a sower. Very easy to understand that. Next part says, the field is the world. So where's he going to plant us? In the comforts of our home? He's going to plant us in the world somewhere. 
He said, well, Chad, I've had three jobs. If I could get one steady one, I'd be better for the Lord. Well, how you know God's not planning in those places? He might want you here for three months. He might want you there for a year. Be obedient to the Holy Spirit because there's work to do everywhere you go. He's planting you in places. You say, well, I thought it would be a missionary journey. That is a missionary journey. The field is the world. The good seed, oh, wee, this is good. I want to know who the seed is. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. We're the good seed. Ever had a bad seed? No, they go bad. And if they go bad, you plant them in the ground, they do nothing, but God plants them and wants to bear fruit everywhere I plant them. So let me tell God where to plant me. I'll tell him where I want to be. You can't do that. He's going to plant you in the world, and you've got to be good seed. We've got to be quality seed. We've got to be a seed that bears fruit and has the Holy Spirit and full of the Holy Spirit. It says the children of the kingdom are the good seed, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. How many have ever been planted around tares? <laughs> you say, no, tares maybe, but not tares. No, they're tares sometimes. But we've been planted with them. Hallelujah. Something I didn't realize, and I hope this is right, I did. I usually try to fact check things a little bit. But fishermen who were uh, oyster fishermen discovered something that they did not know in a story that I read. And I, I, like I said, I haven't confirmed it. But How many know that if you cut a starfish up, he multiplies? If you get into the central part of the starfish, so oyster fishermen just learned by trial and error, they were in their way, so they'd pick it up, they'd kill it, throw it back in, pick it up, kill it, throw it back in, and then they started figuring out our waters are infested with starfish. How many know if we truly want to multiply? In a lot of ways, the church is that same way. You know, God chooses hard times, difficult circumstances, difficult things to multiply the church. And people who are resistant um, to those times aren't prepared for those times. Jesus really spent a lot of time preparing His disciples. He said, here's how it's going to be when I leave, just so you don't get surprised. (laughs) Okay, how many would agree that they went through a lot of hard things? But if you want to be a starfish, you've got to let Him touch us sometimes and the church just thrives and multiplies and and the reason I say that is just out of um, out of um, extreme concern we can be really emotional at times like this and it's easy to do and it's good to do it's good to remember and it's good to you know look at what's around us and uh, Sometimes I kick myself. I look at this chair rail. I look at all that paint. Uh, that prayer room, I had to spend another day in there. It's my favorite prayer room I've ever had. The Lord spoke to me so many times in that prayer room. and I just loved being there. just enjoyed it. Um, and then you look at the ceramic tile. You look at the rooms. You look at the lights. You look at all the things in the building. And it's hard. But it was hard for them to leave too and and my belief is in the Lord. I trust in the Lord and I trust that He's got plans. I trust that He has purposes. And so I put a little list here based on uh, based on Pentecost. The 
Pentecostal harvest. What did God do and what did he expect them to do? Uh, How many know God was already doing it all? He had already had a plan. They didn't have to put one on the table. They just had to do certain things to be ready for it. Uh, God had a plan for Abraham. You know, Abraham was like, well, I better do something because he promised me a child and, you know, the sands of the sea. How can I fulfill this? Sarah and the family household probably had a board meeting. I said, well, how can we plan on our genealogy here? And that was a bad plan. Hagar came into the picture. You know, and, and you see this all through the Bible. Everybody trying to fulfill God's plans by making their own plans. And uh, here's what I see them doing because God had a plan on the table already. <clears throat> Number one, he sent them for the last ten days of the counting of the Omer. The, uh, he didn't tell them how long, he just said go pray. Pray that you will be endued with power from on high. And so I think that's a good starting place. Pray that you be endued with power. And I think the next one follows right along, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So you say, well, what does that do? How does that help me accomplish the plans? Because you're going to have to be prayed up and full of the Holy Spirit to do what He's about to ask you to do now. Because if you truly have a heart to win the lost, you better be prayed up and you better be filled with the Holy Spirit and you better be doing it together with somebody. You know, we need groups of people together praying and staying full of the Holy Spirit and saying, okay, we know it's coming, but what's it going to look like when it comes? Let us, Lord, help us recognize. Help us know because he wants to win the loss more than you do. He just can't find anybody praying and full of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. He wants to win the loss more than us, but he can't find anybody prayed up and full of the Holy Spirit and ready. You know, we got to do it on our own terms sometime. God doesn't want our own terms. Next thing is unity. I mean, know that God will never, ever, ever use a church that's not in unity. And so the, the Holy Spirit is what brings that unity. And when everybody is together in unity um, and full of the Holy Spirit and in prayer, now God is saying, hey, wait a minute. That Jerusalem group, I can just put them in a bag, throw them over here, and the entire world's going to be and we just don't know where he's going to broadcast us, where he's going to throw us, but we just want to be right as a seed, you know. If we're the seed, let's be right, you know. Let's be a fruitful seed. Next thing is trust. You know, um, I'm glad Jesus trusted God because there was a time that uh, everybody left him. And then he looks over at his few that were left and he said, uh, are you going to leave too? <laughs> but he trusted God's plan fully. Nobody ever done that. And he's asking us to do the same thing. Don't look at the outward circumstances. Look at the quality of the seed and say, you know what? God, whatever these circumstances look like, if everybody leaves us and says, and then they're gone, that doesn't mean that God isn't in that thing. Because they did the same thing to Jesus. And he said, guess what? The way they treated me, they'll treat you because of me. (laughs) You know, if you're called by God, it says in Timothy, you will be persecuted. Part of it. So we've got to trust God no matter what happens to say we're going to be a fruitful seed no matter where he puts me. I like the story of the guy that was preaching. Uh, nobody showed up, but he preached like there were a thousand people. There was a man in the basement, and somehow he was connected to Billy Sunday. 
I think he led Billy Sunday to the Lord, one of the greatest evangelists the nation has ever had. And that guy led him to the Lord, and he's the one that got saved that day in the basement working on something, hearing that message preached. <laughs> I mean, just you hear stories like that all the time of people just being faithful, though. So we've got to be faithful and trust God, and we've got to be faithful like they were to preach the gospel. Sometimes we sit on a Bible study like we had on Saturday, and we say, man, am I doing God's work? Yeah. We've got to be faithful to find as many ways as possible to put people in front of the Word, teaching the Word, talk about the Word. You know, we've got to be faithful in that. Even if you don't have results, we've got to be faithful. I think of a, a missionary, uh, Carrie. Uh, what was this person? William Carey. And uh, he went um, to India to be a missionary. And uh, he went for years and never had a convert. Um, his wife died when he got there. He buried her there and still had no converts. He translated uh, several, all kinds of literature in their native language and it burnt down. <laughs> the whole place burnt down and all of his work was gone. But the thing about him was so amazing was he just continued to be faithful. And now the entire, you know, India is just full of the work of William Carey because some of those seeds that he planted grew a harvest. And so if we're going to be faithful ministers, uh, we just have to be faithful to preach, you know, because we don't know. We don't know how many apples are in the seed. You know, how many seeds are in the apple? You know, they show up every week. We can count them. But we don't know how many apples are in the seed. And so that's the potential of the Pentecostal harvest. Because if we do things through the Holy Spirit, we go down that list and say, man, I'm going to pray like I never prayed for a harvest. I'm going to be full of the Holy Spirit like I've never been full. I can be in unity with my brothers and sisters praying for the same thing. I can trust God no matter what happens. And I'm going to be faithful to preach for the rest of my life. How many can do all those things? Those are things that are doable. You say, but I don't have a plan for the uttermost parts of the earth. They didn't either. They just, in fact, my reading, you can add something to that if you want, but my reading, that's what they did. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They were very faithful. And yeah, there was 3,000 saved on the first day, but for three years, nothing happened until they began to be persecuted. And that's when God's plan kicked into gear and said, I'm going to fulfill what I said in Acts 1-8 now. And he fulfilled it in 8-1. Remember that, 8-1-1-8. Very easy to remember. That's when they began to move in what God the, the major harvest. I mean, how, what a harvest. What a Pentecostal harvest you know, that they did there. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And then I just feel led today that uh, we could all maybe stand up and hold hands and just pray for the church in unity. Can we do that? Everybody okay with that? We just pray for blessings. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just pull everybody together here if everybody could just make a circle around here. And I just want us to genuinely pray that uh, for a harvest. Because that's what God led me today in the scriptures is just the Pentecostal harvest. Wherever God calls us, let's just be faithful to God. We don't understand it. We don't have to. Father God, we thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you, God, that your plans are greater than our plans, Lord. God, we never, we never actually understand what you're doing in the moment, Lord. We, we follow what you call us to do, Lord. We go where you, you take us, Lord. And usually it's not until much later that we realize, Lord, that, that you are working, Lord. And Father God, this is, uh, 
This is a hard day for us, Lord. This is a a change, God. This is a this is so much different than we're used to, Lord. But we turn it over to you, Father God. Lord, we know you're going to do a good work, Lord. We know that you're planting seeds, Lord. We know that that each person in here, Father God, is capable of bearing so much fruit, Lord. As Pastor Chad said, Lord, the, the apples and the seed, we can't count, Lord, but you know them already. You know the names, Lord. So, Father God, I pray that you would just use us, Lord. Use your people, Father God. Let us never stop being used. Let us never stop being fruitful, Father God. Let us be, oh God, let us be your instruments to where you're taking us, Lord. Bear fruit through us, Lord. This isn't the end to anything, Lord. Your plan doesn't end. So, Father God, I pray you just use us mightily. And we thank you in advance for the wonderful work you've done and what you're going to do, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. I'm going to have Jason close the word of prayer. Lord, with thanksgiving, with gratitude, we thank you, Lord, for your work that's been done in this building. We thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you, Lord, for its time, for for its time and place. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in this next chapter of Wellspring's story. We, as we turn the page from one chapter to another, Lord, Lord, I thank you for the previous one, but Lord, look forward with excitement to the next one, Lord. Gratitude, Lord, start to finish. Thank you for what you've done, what you've brought us to. Thank you for what you're going to do, Lord, going forward. Thank you, Lord, for this body of believers. Thank you, Lord, for that exciting picture of of seed we are seeds that will produce a harvest that we don't yet know but we can have confidence in you lord and how to get there and how to do it we thank you lord for that lord i ask your blessing on each and every person here lord as we go from this place this morning lord we we want Lord, Lord, increase our our desire to produce a harvest for you, and Lord, lead the way. Lord, let us walk out with appreciation of what you've done and excitement about what you're going to do, Lord, in Jesus' name. Lord, bless your people, and thank you, Lord, for this church family, Wellspring, Lord, in Jesus' name.